Who am I? My mother died when I was seven. For a few years, I bounced around from one family member to another. By the time I was 11, I went to live with my dad on a ship. He was a merchant Navy captain. I certainly didn't learn Latin there on the ship. I learned the depravity of man. Uh, Because of my wayward ways, my father and many others thought it would be best if I received some discipline from military service. I was pressed into the Royal Navy. I hated the military, so I walked away. But that's not the way you're supposed to act. And they found me. And they put me in irons, and they flogged me. I was able to persuade my superior officers that it would be in their best interest to relinquish the responsibility of my life to a slave uh, slave uh, ship. In my arrogance and... Uh, or my, my arrogance and my insubordination did not take a day off. Um, and I later wrote, I sinned with a high hand, and I made it my study to tempt and seduce others. This is what the captain said of me. He would often tell me that To his grief, he had a Jonah on board. That a curse attended me wherever I went and that all the troubles he met with on our voyage were owing to his having taken me aboard. Who am I? While aboard the Greyhound, a Liverpool ship headed back to England, We were overtaken by a monumental storm, so much that our ship was beginning to break up. We feared for our lives. We drifted for weeks at sea. I begged God, the God that my mother used to tell me about. I begged him for mercy. I repented of my sin. And that began my walk with the Lord Jesus. Eventually, I left the sea. I became a pastor. And with my good friend, William Cooper, we began to write many hymns together, hundreds of them. One of my more well-known hymns, uh, maybe you've heard of it, goes like this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. My name is John Newton. There are many such stories of peoples whose lives are a wreck uncontrolled, undisciplined, 
unguarded. And then, maybe at a moment of crisis, the Lord grabs a hold of their lapels. And he shows us mercy and grace. As we turn to the text of Scripture we'll consider this morning, another John Newton kind of life. First, we need to clarify the definitions of a few words. To receive justice is to get what I, what I deserve. To receive mercy is to not get what I deserve. To receive grace is to receive what I do not deserve. Mercy and grace are twin sister concepts, often used synonymously, often used interchangeably, but we can get down to the root of those ideas and see a little bit of a distinction there. This morning we're in John chapter 8. First handful of verses of that particular chapter. And before we actually look at the text, read the text, I want to highlight uh, the fact that we have a textual dilemma before us. Now, if you have the NIV translation, this particular section, beginning at chapter 7, verse 53, going through chapter 8, verse 11, If you have the NIV text, this particular section is isolated by a line above it and a line below it. If you have the NIS text, like I have, you will find this section in brackets. Some editions of the RSV text don't have this section in the main body of the text at all. It's a footnote. And then again, if you have the King James or the New King James translations, uh, you will not see any markings at all. And you'll wonder, what in the world are we talking about? Let's just get into the text, shall we? Let me explain what's going on here. This particular section is a rich detailed, delightful, necessary text of Scripture for us to consider. But it is also very controversial. Let me explain why. Let me first explain that we, are, we, we, we have this, this, uh, this, this sidebar, if you will, uh, of discussion that deals with textual criticism or lower criticism. And, and in this scientific discipline, we are asking the question, what does the original text say? What are the actual words that John or Peter or, or Isaiah wrote? 
we do not have any of the original autographs. Now, that shouldn't scare you. First of all, we have the Holy Spirit who is guaranteeing that we have God's revelation to us, preserved and protected. And we have a mountain of additional evidence in the form of manuscripts, translations, church father commentaries that affirm what the reading of the text is. Um, uh, let, let, me give you, let me give you an example. There is in the um, National Institute of Standards and Technology outside of Washington, D.C., the yardstick that tells us how long a yard is exactly, precisely. Well, what happened? What, what happens if an unfortunate thing happens and that building and all of the, 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 the stuff and the standards that we use are, are, are burned up? Well, we have lots of different ways of reconstructing what a yardstick is. And similarly, in this particular case, though we don't have the original autograph by John that reads the Gospel according to St. John, though we don't have the original document We have so many other things. We have thousands, tens of thousands of manuscripts. And the process by which scientists, scholars, researchers use to um, put all of these pieces together, collecting all of these different uh, readings, and then coming up with, this is the original reading That's the science of textual criticism, or lower criticism as it's sometimes called. Um, let um, let 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 me put that idea of textual criticism in the context of this section that's before us this morning at the beginning of chapter 8. Uh, Leon Morris, who is a sounds a biblical evangelical orthodox scholar, he, he says in his commentary on John, the textual evidence for this particular section of what we're looking at, the textual evidence makes it impossible to hold that this section is an authentic part of the gospel. Oh. Well, the the exception is a 5th century family of manuscripts called by scholars D. They they use the letter D. Uh, Sometimes they call it the the Western manuscripts. These are Latin-based manuscripts as opposed to Greek-based manuscripts. And the King James Bible, New King James Bible, are are, uh, built largely off of 
of uh, the Western manuscripts. So that this section in John chapter 8 dealing with this, this adulterous woman, this, this John Newton kind of person, this section is uh, uh, simply a, a natural part of the text. But all of the other early, earlier translations, all of the earlier manuscripts, all of the early church uh, uh, fathers that commented on the text of Scripture do not comment on chapter 7, verse 53 through chapter 8, verse 11 because it wasn't there. It doesn't show up. The earliest manuscripts that we have, the, I've made mention of in, in this sermon series so far, the John Rylands manuscript, we, we, have, a, we have a fragment of, uh, of John's gospel that is, is, is just a few years removed from when John wrote it. But nothing that we have that's really old, certainly before the 5th century, includes this section. So, um, so we, we've, got a, uh, we've, got, we've, got a, we've got a problem here. Well, sc- scholars point out that there are, there are stylistic differences. There are vocabulary differences in this section as compared with the, the rest of the Gospel of John. And they use that as evidence that mm, John didn't write this. Sometimes in in different manuscript families, this particular section shows up in other places. Sometimes it shows up after chapter 7, verse 36. At other times, it shows up after chapter 7, verse 44. At other times, it shows up after John chapter 21, verse 25. There are some manuscripts that attribute this section that we're going to look at this morning to Luke and it shows up in his gospel record after chapter 21, verse 38. Listen to a couple of scholars. James R. White notes, quote, Such moving about by a body of text is plain evidence of its later origin, an attempt on the part of scribes to find a place where it fits. Unquote. D.A. Carson adds, the diversity of placement confirms the inauthenticity of these verses. So what are we supposed to do with this section? Did John write it or did he not? Or maybe another um, um, apostle or apostolic authority wrote it. And, And maybe it didn't... Uh, come from John's hand, but, but John found that and placed it in his gospel record. Maybe somebody else put it in John's gospel record. What are we, what, how are we to think about that? What, one of the Lutheran scholars to whom I refer, uh, refer frequently, uh, R.C.H. Lenski, offers no comment on this particular section of Scripture. Because he said, John didn't write it. And he moves right on. 
He does add this, however. This spurious section reports quite correctly an an actual occurrence in the life of Jesus. Every feature of it bears the stamp of probability, although we are unable to say at what point in the story of Jesus it should be inserted. Maybe the section was not written by the Apostle John. B.F. Westcott writes, It is beyond doubt an authentic fragment of apostolic tradition. So here's the bottom line. When you turn to this passage of Scripture, depending on your translation, you might say, wait, something is amiss here. I don't know if I can trust this or not. I am personally completely convinced that this is the authoritative Word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit and profitable for us in every way. Personally, I am okay with the fact that maybe the Apostle John did not write this. But it certainly does have I agree with other scholars, some that I've read already this morning, that this has the mark of authenticity. This is, this is completely consistent with the nature, the character, the, the, the work of Christ as he deals with sinners. So I look at this text of Scripture as gospel. Even though it may be set apart with brackets or lines or maybe even included in a footnote. Let's read our text. God's Word. <laughs> John chapter 7, verse 53. Everyone went to his home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger and wrote in the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone, and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, 
I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. One of the reasons why some scholars say this this uh, this 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 couldn't be written by the apostle John um, is 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 because uh, they they find that there's an interruption in the flow of thought. Maybe it should be inserted elsewhere. They would argue. I think that this thing fits perfectly well exactly where it is. We know that Jesus, when he was in Jerusalem, um, frequently did not stay in the city. He spent his nights outside the city very frequently. He was in Bethany, a bedroom community of Jerusalem, to the south and to the east, on the other side of this of the uh, uh, Mount of Olives, uh, he, he would stay with uh, with his friends Lazarus and and Mary and and Martha. Um, if this context is correct, this is the season of the 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 um, uh, Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booze, where where the Jews uh, slept in tents. They went camping for the week. So it's, it's well within uh, uh, easy explanation that during uh, this particular feast, Jesus is in a tent on the Mount of Olives. We, we find that in verse 2, he's, uh, he's back in the temple teaching. And verse 3 tells us that scribes and Pharisees are uh, coming up to Jesus and they've got a package to deliver. Let me spend just a, just a second um, differentiating between scribes and Pharisees. It's, uh, it, it's helpful and important for us later on in the, uh, in, in the, in the text. A, a scribe is an expert in religious knowledge. These are the lawyers. These are the ones who specialize in understanding, discerning, parsing all of the details of the law. The Pharisees were the ones who excelled in religious practice, or so they wanted you to believe. Some Pharisees were scribes. Some scribes were Pharisees. But not necessarily were the two synonymous. They could be two separate and distinct groups. William Barclay differentiates between the two. It was the scribes who worked out all the details and regulations. It was the Pharisees who devoted their whole lives to the keeping of them. Together, scribes and Pharisees were the conservative, um, right-wing um, uh, by the book, cross-section of Judaism. So these two groups of men approach Jesus while he is teaching in the temple. 
Their package is a woman. A woman caught in the act of adultery. Verse 4. Teacher, they approach Jesus and address him in a respectful, polite way. Rabbi would be another way to render it. This woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, in the law of Moses, he commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? Well, according to the rabbis, there were three greatest sins. The most heinous things you could do were this list of three things. Idolatry, murder, and adultery. And all three were capital crimes. If you got caught committing these crimes, tried for these crimes, you would die by death. (laughs) Well, that's kind of a silly way to say it. (laughs) What I meant to say was you would... Never mind what I'm, yeah, it didn't, that didn't work. All right, let's, let's just talk about the, the, the problem of adultery. In Leviticus 20, it says, the law says, Moses wrote down God's command. If a woman and a man are involved in an adulterous relationship, they both shall die. No method of of their death penalty um, is uh, prescribed there. However, in Deuteronomy chapter 22, it says that both the man and the woman in an adulterous relationship must die by stoning. Now there, it's clarified that the woman is... A, a gal who has been engaged, she's betrothed, but she hasn't consummated the marriage. She hasn't been actually married yet. And now she is involved in a sexual relationship with a different man. In that case, Deuteronomy 22, both, husband, uh, bo- both man and woman shall be stoned. Right, So we, we, we surmise from that that this particular woman, a young woman, has been um, engaged to, to a man and yet she has um, been involved sexually with another man. Um, verse 5 is, is, um, is, is interesting in the original language. The last phrase of that puts the pronoun you in, in, at the beginning of the phrase, which, uh, what we call the emphatic position, where, where, the, where the scribes and the Pharisees asked Jesus, Rabbi, um, you, what do you say ought to be done? Well, uh, immediately this whole thing s- smells fishy. First off, where's the guy both the man and the woman involved in any kind of adulterous relationship um, are to, 
It's a capital crime for both of them. They're both to die. Um, and why is it that they have to parade this woman publicly before Jesus? These experts, these scribes, know the law backwards and forwards. They don't need to consult yet another rabbi to know what it says. They know that. Also, why is there no trial mentioned here, which is prescribed in the law? This this smells like a lynching. Well, we are... um, we are privileged to have verse 6 presented for us because by divine revelation, by divine omniscience, we are able to see into the minds, the heads, the motives of these scribes and Pharisees. Verse 6 tells us that they were saying this to test Jesus so that they might have grounds for accusing him. So they set the trap, they baited the trap, and they waited for Jesus to step into the trap. Here's what the, here's what the, the religious leaders were expecting. This was, this was the trap that they were setting for Jesus. If Jesus said, yes, stone the woman, he would have lost credibility with the masses that he was the friend of sinners. And he would have been on a collision course with Rome Because the Romans said, you Jews cannot uh, uh, carry out any um, capital punishment. We have to do that. That's why, even though the religious leaders were opposed to Jesus and wanted to take him out, that's why Pilate, the Roman uh, uh, governor, had to sign off on Jesus' execution rather than Caiaphas, the high priest. So if Jesus said, yes, stone her, they knew that he would lose credibility with the people and they could take this case to Rome and say, this guy is... is, he, he is acting outside of the boundaries of Rome. He's a dangerous man and needs to be removed. Additionally, in Rome, in Roman society, adultery was not a capital crime. So he could also have been accused of, of uh, or, or, or uh, been labeled, had a, had a hate crime slapped on him. On the other hand, if Jesus had said, no, don't stone her, he would be in direct uh, conflict with Mosaic law. Because they said, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Hmm. So they waited. 
wondering which leg Jesus would have bloodied as he stepped into their trap. Right leg or left leg, Jesus? Yes or no? Those are the horns of the dilemma that they put Jesus in. They, they sought to skewer Jesus by, maybe. Second page of your notes. Point number three. The dilemma is reversed, however. Beginning with Jesus' non-answer to their question. The end of verse 6 tells us that Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. I so wish somebody there had a cell phone, brought it out and snapped a pic so, so we could see what was it that Jesus wrote. There's been so much speculation through the years of, of what Jesus said. Uh, there, there are some people that said, well, he was, he was writing down the sins of the men that were surrounding this woman. There are other people that say that, that, that Jesus was, was writing verses of Scripture. Maybe like this one. Exodus chapter 23, verse 1. You shall not bear a false report. Do not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. Or, or maybe Jesus was, was writing down Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13. O Lord, the hope of Israel... All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down. Because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. Was Jesus writing down their names? For having forsaken the Lord? There are other people that say, well... Um, he, he may have been reminding them of what the law says in Deuteronomy 17. Let me read it to you. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. Was he instructing them or reminding them of the law's demand that the ones who were the witnesses now turned accusers were the ones responsible to carry out the execution? We don't know. We don't know what Jesus was writing in the dirt. In his commentary on the book of Romans, John Calvin uh, wisely counsels us, when God closes his holy mouth, we should desist from inquiry. All right. All right, we're learning our lesson here. We are so curious, but we don't know. We don't know what exactly Jesus wrote. We simply note that he was stooping down. He was writing with his finger. And verse 7 tells us that they persisted in asking him. Were they simply impatient? Because if Jesus was writing a whole verse of Scripture, it would have taken a little bit of time. 
were they embarrassed because he wrote their names or because he wrote their sins? Were they embarrassed because maybe they were convicted? Because they had used and abused this particular woman. And where is the man? Hmm. Jesus' reply is pure brilliance. He straightens up and he says to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Jesus does not deny this woman's guilt. Jesus does not deny uh, the severity of the law. Hmm. Jesus upholds the law. He pushes the responsibility for carrying out the law to these men. They're the witnesses now turned accusers. Hmm. I, I wonder if I wonder if Romans chapter two, verse one fits in right here. This is what Paul wrote. Therefore, you, you, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. Were they convicted by their own sin? And that caused them to walk away This whole trap-setting, trap-baiting didn't work like they thought. They thought Jesus was going to end up stepping with one foot or the other into the trap. But they walked away with this trap around their own foot. Point number four, the judicial dilemma. In, uh, in our text, um, uh, it says in verse, verse 9 that they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. She was left alone in the court with Jesus. So he addresses her, middle of verse 10. Woman, let me stop right there and make a comment. Um, that, that sounds pretty cold, harsh, um, without much care. To, to this woman who is um, horrified, uh, um, uh, beyond embarrassed. This is not a this is not a harsh term. It's not a it's not a cold or callous term. Uh, this is the same term that Jesus used as he spoke to his mother, his grieving mother, watching her boy die by way of crucifixion. This is how Jesus addressed his mom, Mary, woman. This is how Jesus addressed Mary Magdalene. Remember, the, the, the first person to whom Jesus revealed himself as the resurrected Christ was to a woman, Mary. And in her confused, grieving state, Jesus addressed her, 
woman to the Samaritan woman embarrassed as she went to to the well where all the other women went so embarrassed that she went in the middle of the day in the heat of the day Jesus addressed this woman who was in process of being converted Jesus addressed her woman it's not cold and harsh it is to our 21st century western minds but not in Jesus' day. It was a term of, of affection, warmth, respect. Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? No one, Lord, she replied. No one. They all walked away. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. The sweetest word for that soul that is burdened by sin, remorseful for all that has taken place, all that has been gone on in my mind, all the things that I've done, all the places that I've gone, all, all the things I've allowed my eyes to see. That person who is, who is broken and crushed by their sin with remorse, the sweetest word that person can hear is forgiven. It's a word that Jesus brings to those who believe. It's only given to those who believe. Because those who do not believe, we've already encountered this in John's Gospel, these are the ones that stand condemned. They will not receive mercy. They will not receive grace. They will receive justice. But those who believe, those who come to Christ, eat from him who is the bread of life, these will be, are forgiven. D.A. Carson says this of, of, of forgiveness. It is the proper response to mercy received on account of past sins for purity in the future. Forgiveness is not simply wiping a slate clean. It is giving that person the ability and the freedom to live a different lifestyle. There is a great deal of confusion in our day with regard to this understanding of forgiveness. And here's where we need to explore this judicial dilemma that we face. Scriptures make it clear that God is a God of justice. And the Scriptures make it clear that God is also a God of mercy, a God of grace, 
how is that? How, 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 how do mercy and justice fit together? How do grace and law fit together? Psalm 85 verse 10 reads, Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. How is it that God is both just and merciful? How is it that we can talk about grace, receiving what we don't deserve, and yet at the same time talk about the law and being law keepers? For you see, the law demands obedience. The law does not understand mercy. The law cannot give mercy. The law gives us an ultimatum. You obey or you are punished. It's black or white. There is no in-between. Romans chapter 7, verse 12. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law demands obedience. Ezekiel 18, verse 4. The soul that sins dies. So if God is just, and he is 100% justice, and he has given us his law, this good, righteous, holy law, how can he show kindness, mercy, grace? That doesn't fit, does it? Here's the bottom line. God shows justice to Christ. And when justice is satisfied, he is able to show mercy toward those who believe. Some people think that to show forgiveness is, is uh, to simply um, wink at, at sin or to uh, brush it under the rug, to pretend it didn't exist. That's a mockery of justice. God is, God, God is completely just, and that justice is demonstrated in Christ so that on the basis of what happens to Christ, God is now able to extend forgiveness justly in Christ. Let, 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 me, let me direct your attention to a few passages of Scripture. Turn first with me to, uh, to, to, to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, 
sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, namely in Christ, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us through Christ. Christ endured what we deserved. Justice is satisfied. And the Father is propitiated. And on that basis, now, with justice out of the way, in a manner of speaking, He can show mercy and kindness. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 3. Find verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So in Christ, God the Father is just to accept his substitutionary death as adequate payment for our transgressions that has been removed. Now he is able to show mercy. He does not give us what we deserve. On that basis, he is now able to show us grace. He is able to give us what we do not deserve. Forgiveness is that gracious gift that we do not deserve. God is merciful when he doesn't exact the penalty of death upon us. He is gracious when he extends forgiveness to us. Now what that forgiveness means is that there is a change of life. When a person repents of sin, is convicted of sin, turns from all of that to follow the Savior, the death of Christ is applied judiciously, um, legally, justly to Christ. God shows mercy and does not extend that punishment to us. He gives us his Holy Spirit, the indwelling Spirit. He forgives us. And in that process, freeing us from the penalty of our sin, he frees us to become a slave of righteousness. 
so that we, in, in our um, um, post-repentance life, our, our post-believing life, that is, I am now in that, that state of sanctification with Christ, now in this life, the manner of my lifestyle of being forgiven reveals itself in, in, a, in a different lifestyle. Uh, uh, I, I'm not the person I used to be, so I can't live the way I used to live. Look with me over at 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, no, I'm sorry, chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself, speaking of Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. There's the change. somehow lost my card um, so I'm going to tell you what I remember from memory when John Newton was old he lost sight of his eyes he lost the use of his eyes and on one occasion he heard someone say from uh, read from 1 Corinthians um, I, I, am, I am not who I used to be. By the grace of God, I am not who I used to be. No, that's not it. By the grace of God, I am who I am. That's what he says. And as John Newton commented on that, he said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not the person that I I should be. I've been gifted with so much of God's rich blessings all of my life. I'm, I'm not who I should be. I'm, 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 not, um, I'm not the person that, that I, I could be. Had I disciplined myself more? But I'm not who I was. He, uh, he, was, he was quick to, to confess his, his um, uh, derelict, profligate, uh, depraved life, even as a slave trader. He was not proud of that. And it, and it always drove him to his knees to remember that God was merciful and gracious to him all of his days. Even on his tombstone, he wrote the epitaph for his, for his own tombstone. He acknowledges the fact that, yeah, 
He, uh, he was a great sinner, but he served a great Savior. When forgiveness is extended, a change of life is exposed. Let's pray. Blessed Father, we thank you that you have gone ahead of us in Christ and done what we could never do. We, we, we couldn't even imagine uh, something like a, 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 a person giving their own life as a substitution for us. And, and, that, and yet that is, that is the... That is gospel truth. Thank you for reminding us of that. Thank you for the forgiveness you extend to the likes of this adulterous woman, the likes of us. You continue to be a God of justice and mercy and grace for which we give you eternal thanks. Amen.